Well, good morning. This is the Lou Rockwell Show, and what a treat it is today to have James Howard Kunstler as our guest. He's an extraordinary blogger, as anybody who reads him on LRC knows, twice a week blog. Just uh, everyone is an extraordinary piece of work, funny, pointed, interesting, learned. He's quite something. And therefore, you won't be surprised to find out that he's done much more than being a blogger. He's written 14 novels. He's written five nonfiction books. Uh, he's written one play. He lives way up in upstate New York, um, where he is a champion of rural America, uh, an expert in why suburban America uh, hasn't really worked as it ought to have worked and why it's going to be working less and less, and uh, why the cities are not places you're going to want to live uh, in the future of this country. So James Howard Kunstler, it's just great to have you on the show. A pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great. And, and uh, uh, I love your writing and you're just, you're extraordinary. And I, it, it just struck me that, you know, today we have uh, the hearings going on with, with Mr. Mueller and uh, Dr. David Gordon, who is one of the our Mises Institute scholars, just called me and he said, Lou, he said, I can't believe it. Mueller looks like a complete stumble bum. <laughs> he said he's white-faced, he doesn't know what he's doing, and he's not exactly uh, serving what the Democrat, the purposes the Democrats hoped he would serve. So have you, have you looked at any of it? And, and of course, you've certainly written about Mueller and the Democrats. Yeah, I've been, I've been uh, taking in some of it this morning, and uh, it's an amazing spectacle that fills one with wonder and nausea. <laughs> about what has happened, especially to the thinking class in the United States. And um, it's really quite a, a, a stupefying and dismaying spectacle. So is, are the Republicans asking any good questions? Or are they, in a sense, part of the game, too? Oh, no, I think the Republicans are asking uh, meaningful questions. And, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Mueller has a lot to answer for. Uh, I, I happened to write a comment on the New York Times story about the hearings today. And, uh, you know, one of the things I personally would like to know is uh, why the Mueller report spent 20 pages um, describing the infamous Trump Tower meeting uh, <laughs> between the Russian lawyer and, and the Russian PR guy and Trump Jr., and uh, the Mueller report never mentions the fact that the Russian lawyer was in the employ of Fusion GPS on the payroll of Fusion GPS and had met both before and after the meeting with the head of Fusion GPS, which, as we know, was the Hillary Clinton uh, political ops subcontractor. So, uh, you know, that that sort of characteristic of uh, the kind of um, – I think, dishonesty and bad faith that the Mueller investigation represented. Do you think that uh, Comey and, and the rest of them are going to be eventually pay a price for what they did? Or I think a lot of people are going to be prosecuted. Yeah, magnificent. I do. <laughs> because, and of course, the, the whole FISA business. Why is there still a FISA court, by the way, after what we, what we know of them today? Well, because we have not successfully um, uh, and officially unraveled this really dastardly matter of what really appears to be uh, an organized coup attempt against a sitting president, a uh, president who, by the way, I did not vote for. I did not vote for his, oppo his opponent either. Um, and uh, But it's pretty clear that the um, political establishment or the permanent bureaucracy, or sometimes known as the deep state, did actually um, conspire to uh, get rid of Trump as 
efficiently as possible. And the scheme fell apart and blew up in their faces. And, uh, you know, the, I think the, the tide has turned and now the, uh, people who perpetrated this fraud are going to be, uh, going to pay a price for it. And, uh, you know, I'm not particularly a Trump partisan, but, uh, what, what really bothers me, especially as someone who has been a registered Democrat, believe it or not, since 1972, is that the just, amazing bad faith and dishonesty of the Democratic Party, and uh, especially over the last several years. I, You know, I agree. It's astounding. And I, I, I didn't vote, although I was uh, rooting for Trump over, over Hillary, and I was glad he won. Uh, I would say his foreign policy has not turned out to be quite what I had hoped. Uh, but um, that's none of the, the business of these people in the CIA and and uh, the rest of the deep state uh, apparatus who've been, as you say, attempted a coup. In fact, I've wondered why they didn't just assassinate him. I mean, uh, why didn't they just pull a JFK on him? Uh, I wonder why that is. Yeah, good question. Although, you know, my experience as someone who lived through that those um, years of uh, assassinations in, in the late 60s is that there's something about that that is kind of uh, – has the characteristic of, of a social epidemic. Mm-hmm. You know, once the first one happens, then then a bunch of them happen. And then you go through a period of history where, for some reason, there's no attempt to do that. You know, maybe people are uh, afraid that uh, there's now too much social surveillance for anybody to get away with that. Uh, who knows what it is exactly? But, um, yeah, it's a little bit strange. I, I, I expected they would actually run the 25th yes. Amendment on uh, Mr. Trump and— uh, they haven't done that yet. Uh, you know, uh, we'll see how this shakes out. He's having a not he's not having a not particularly successful time in the White House. Although, um, personally, uh, I admire his his perseverance and the fact that he doesn't give up, and the fact that he fights back. Uh, I'm not a Trump partisan, but uh, you have to give him credit for that. Well, he's the golden golem, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the golden golem of greatness, as I like to characterize him. Yeah, he's, he's, he is an extraordinary guy, and I, I heard part of one of his campaign uh, speeches the other day, and he really is extraordinary. I mean, I don't think there's anybody else who could uh, deliver a speech like that and get that kind of response from an audience, speak that long. Certainly no, no other Republican and no Democrat is capable of that. Well, he seems to have gotten very good at what he's good at doing, and I'm, I don't admire what he's good at doing that much. Uh, <laughs> I'm always a little dismayed by how inarticulate he is uh, and how how poorly he argues uh, even pretty simple points. But uh, nonetheless, he does stand up for himself, and um, uh, it, it's even more dismaying to see uh, how his opponents and adversaries are acting. Uh, the, the their dishonesty is really off the charts, and it's very bad for this country. It really sets a bad example for everybody uh, to see such dirty fighting. Do you think that um, if, say, that a, a Democrat were to, were to be elected, that we're in for some uh, violence in this country? Uh, yeah, I uh, I do, particularly if a Democrat is elected, and um, uh, but. I have been under the impression that we we would see quite a bit more disorder in the United States uh, than has been the case previously. And I still think it's going to happen. And I think a lot of it really depends on what happens with the economy and with people's ability to earn a living. 
because there are an awful lot of people out there who are really suffering. No, it's true. You know, who, who have lost their not only jobs, but lost entire vocations, entire lines of work have vanished. And, and the um, damage to families and households is extraordinary. And I happen to live in a flyover corner of the USA. I live in a small uh, town in remote upstate New York, about 200 miles from the city. Uh, north of Albany. This was a little town that had five factories in it uh, in the 20th century. Uh, they're all gone. And um, there's, you know, literally hardly any real economy here left anymore. And the same is true of many of the towns around us in upstate New York. And to see how beaten down the citizens of this region are is really a caution. They are really doing very poorly. They're hugely demoralized and and uh, living in a purposeless kind of uh, state of existence and uh, doing very poorly economically, can't uh, uh, feed their kids. Um, we have a tremendous food giveaway program in this town because uh, so many kids are going to school hungry. And, um, you know, if that gets worse, and I think it will, something's probably going to break. And I think we will see a, a lot of armed um, insurrection and, and, and resistance. You know, I, I don't know whether you read National Review. I try not to read it, but I sometimes do. I, I do. I, and not for any particularly they're, good reason. Well, they're, they're, they hate people like this. And, they, and that's why they say we need many more immigrants to come in and displace yeah. these people. And, I, and of course, it's also always struck me as an unbelievable fraud that people who are so-called not, you know, not looking for work are no are not unemployed. They just have disappeared from the statistics. So everybody, including Trump, is heralding, "Hey, how great the, uh, you know, the just a few people are unemployed." But of course, there's a vast number of people unemployed and a vast number of people underemployed, and uh, it's a frightening and, and horrible thing. Yeah, and I think it's a, a major mistake that. Uh, Mr. Trump has, as they say, taken ownership of the economy because oh, gosh. it's a very yeah. dubious economy. And, uh, you know, personally, I think that the financial part of the economy, which has come to dominate everything else, is uh, headed for a lot of trouble. And when that happens, Mr. Trump will be the owner of that trouble. Yeah, no, of course, you're right. And, and uh, I wonder how much he understands. I wonder how much he understands about a lot of stuff, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy. Yeah. But uh, he's, the, the amount of spending he's engaged in is just quite extraordinary. be extraordinary for a liberal Democrat, but for an alleged conservative Republican, it's, uh, I must say, it's alarming. Yeah, that, of course, is uh, one of the reasons that uh, we have to worry about the financial sector because uh, the debt that we're piling up both publicly and privately is so stupendous that sooner or later it's going to break something. Uh, you know, it will either break the stock and bond markets or it will break the dollar itself. And I personally think that there, it, it, there, there's a, a likelihood that the dollar itself will be the real victim of all that. No, I saw that J.P. Morgan just uh, said yesterday that they thought that the dollar could very well lose its uh, its reserve currency function. Mm -hmm. Well, the the other nations in the world are certainly working sedulously <laughs> to <laughs> yes. to to do that, uh, and for good reason because uh, the United States policy uh, has been to shut them out of the usual avenues of making 
global financial tra transactions. And, you know, this is particularly important in a, in a global economy that depends on long uh, natural resource supply lines and long manufacturing lines. And, you, you know, you get, we're facing a situation where, for example, uh, a large container ship leaves China with a, sh with a whole bunch of uh, uh, shipping containers on it for the United States. And, you know, they need a letter of credit in order to uh, make that delivery. Um, and if they don't get that, then the delivery will not be made. And wh whoever is on the receiving end of that won't get their stuff. And the manufacturer won't be able to you know, produce the product. And uh, that will thunder through the whole economy. And uh, uh, that's the kind of uh, technical trouble we're heading into with this kind of behavior. No, and I often wonder how, how of course, a lot of these people in the government just love killing and, and crushing other people. That's one of the reasons they go into government. But, um, yeah. I, I, you know, I wonder the sanctions. The U.S. has got horrendous sanctions on so many countries that they see as not hurting us but hurting the other side, although I think they hurt uh, us as well. But um, – yeah, and it's a big just, one is the SWIFT code. The, that's exactly right, yes. Yeah, the SWIFT code, which is the international uh, financial settlements uh, system for wiring sums of money around the planet. And uh, we're shutting out all of these players who are major players in the global economy and not allowing them to use that system. So what do we expect? You know, Do we think that they're so dumb that they can't uh, write enough code to create their own uh, <laughs> uh, financial transfer system? It's not that complicated, right? No, and both the Russians and the Chinese are are doing it, and maybe others as well. Yeah. And I noticed that Iran intends to use cryptocurrencies to try to circumvent their sanctions. Uh-huh. Um, it's true. I, there's something you mentioned, though, that I think is important and, and uh, needs a little bit of clarification. You know, you, you mentioned the... Um, uh, the sanctions and the kind of strong-arm tactics that are being used by the U.S. in our global negotiations, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, what is especially interesting to me is how the, uh, the, the progressives are, are behaving in, the same, in that way. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people think that the whole progressive movement is all about uh, social justice, right? You know, it's a, about, re you know, making mm -hmm. uh, uh, reparation for in one way or another for the mistreatment of one victim group or, or another victim, victim group. And um, that's actually not what's going on. And I think it's important to, for people to understand what is going on on that side of the political spectrum. It's all about coercion. It's about the pleasures of coercion. It's about people taking pleasure and pushing other people around mm -hmm. and telling them what to think and how to act and what to do. And that, that kind of motive, political motive, uh, is really immune to any kind of rational, reasonable argument or debate. And that's one of the reasons that we are not having a successful political discussion about anything in this country, Be, because that side is simply interested in coercing other people and other parties and other factions. No, it's true. And it, that, that's here domestically and it's true internationally. And it's, it's, it's alarming and, and horrendous. Well, there we are. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? Well, what, what, what should we do? Well, I think we should recognize a few things, and and uh, we should begin by just becoming cognizant of what's really going on. And uh, you know, one is that when you hear people um, talking about inclusion and diversity, 
and their real interest is is in shutting down debate and deplatforming mm-hmm. speakers and deplatforming uh, people who uh, use YouTube and use social media and use any other platform out there. You know that you're de- you're dealing with deeply hypocritical parties, and uh, uh, I think something needs to be done about that. It's probably not a good idea to have the government controlling social media and telling them what they can do. But uh, I, you know, the one solution that has been proposed, which I think is a good start, is to identify these companies as publishing companies, not as open media platforms. And the reason you can do that is because they are now editing the material that mm-hmm. appears on their platforms and they are functioning as publishers. And publishers can be sued for bad behavior and bad faith and mistreating people. And the platforms under the, uh, the law today technically cannot be sued because they, they claim to be open platforms. So we need to uh, recategorize them as, as publishers and make sure that people can uh, uh, go after them for, being, for deplatforming them. This is a section of the hilariously named Communications Decency Act, where they uh, are immune from being sued for the, un, you know, for the actions that they take, unlike the New York Times or the LA Times or, or uh, any, other, any other newspaper or, or magazine right. publisher. And there are an awful lot of people who, you know, in today's economy, now, now that the internet has been as disruptive as it is, a lot of people uh, have landed on the, on the internet uh, to make a living. Mm-hmm. And they are arbitrarily and capriciously depriving people of the ability to make a living on the internet by doing what they do and deplatforming people. So this is very serious business. It's another thing, by the way, which I think could eventually incite violence in this country. No, no. I, you think of the people who this has happened to, and it destroys their life, as you point out, their economic life, and uh, destroys their career. And their and their calling, it's it's quite horrendous. Yeah. And I noticed just recently that Facebook no, is not going uh, no longer going to allow the Bible to be quoted. Oh, really? Because it's hate speech. Yes. So just to warn you, was that a product <laughs> of the uh, patriarchy? <laughs> I guess. Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess it's got to go then, huh? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's uh, it's astounding. There's a British publication just had a story that they were astounded that when a British uh, publication covered uh, Nigel Farage's travels and, and speeches in the U.S. They got uh, extremely nasty emails from top people at uh, Google and uh, Facebook and several of the other big companies denouncing them for covering this guy, that the only way to handle him was never to cover him, never to mention his name, and uh, then, then he'll disappear, apparently. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's part of what is inspiring them to do what they do. And it pretty much works. I mean, uh, Alex Jones, for example, has not entirely disappeared, but he's pretty much disappeared. And he had a huge web presence mm-hmm. before they, they, in a coordinated attack, all the, all the, the publishers got together and just uh, disappeared him. Yeah. Well, I, I was never a, uh, an Alex Jones fan particularly, but um, they've, all, they've deplatformed many, many, many other people. And, uh, you know, it's not right. It ain't right, as we say up here. <laughs> And you were born in New York City, are you? And you're glad you're living in in uh, near Saratoga, is it? Yeah, um, I was born and raised in New York City. I had a three year interlude in the Long Island suburbs, and then my parents busted up, and I moved back into Manhattan 
and was raised there. Um, you know, I, I had in some ways uh, an unusual uh, childhood and it was, a, you know, a good thing to go to a grammar school on 82nd Street and Madison Avenue and being able to walk a block to the Metropolitan Museum of Art at lunchtime when you were nine years old. And mm -hmm. and back then, art was not a, a branch of showbiz, so you could <laughs> get in for free. And uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art was empty on weekday afternoons. Do you know why? Tell me. Because New York City was a middle-class city in 1958. And everybody was at work. It wasn't full of, you know, idle hedge fund wives uh, with nothing to do at uh, three o'clock in the afternoon or, or uh, well, anyway, um, so I, you know, it, it was my good fortune to be able to uh, have all that. But, you know, by the time I was a teenager, uh, I was interested in some, doing some other things and go to museums. You know, I wanted to ride motorcycles and go bass fishing <laughs> and, uh, and date girls with vowels in their names. <laughs> and uh, you couldn't do that in Manhattan. So, so uh, you know, I uh, wanted to get out. Uh, I eventually went to a pretty fourth-rate uh, SUNY college in New York. Um, I was a pretty bad high school student, and I got rejected from the colleges that I applied to. And uh, so the summer after I graduated from high school, my friends were telling me to get into college or I'd be drafted. For the Vietnam War. That was the summer of 1966. I didn't want to especially want to, I didn't especially want to get drafted. So I sent letters out to three SUNY colleges and two of them sent me applications and one of them sent me a dorm contract. <laughs> wow. So, so I called them up and said, what's this, what's, a, what's this about? And they said, oh, well, well, that's, that's where you live when you, when you come here. And I said, you mean when I go to college? And they said, yeah, when you come here to go to college, that's where you live. I didn't want to tell them that, you know, I hadn't applied, but, uh, I guess I learned in retrospect that they were desperate for downstate students. So I went to this, uh, college in a remote little village about as far away from New York city as you can get and still be in New York. And I, I really quite liked being in small town America. It appealed to me hugely, especially being able to leave the town and be out in the countryside in five minutes, which you couldn't do in Manhattan. So, uh, uh, you know, and after, you know, after college, when I grew up, I bounced around as a newspaper reporter in Boston and, and I worked for Rolling Stone magazine in San Francisco and, uh, you know, eventually I had enough of that and I decided to just drop out and, uh, I, I sort of took refuge in an upstate New York town to write books and that, that's what I did. Tell me where you went to camp in the summertime. Oh, I went to a camp in New Hampshire uh, near um, the town of Lebanon, also near the town of Hanover, where Dartmouth is. And, you know, this was back in the day when there were still a lot of unpaved roads in New Hampshire, kind of hard to believe. There were there were no interstate highways. And, um, you know, it was it was New Hampshire was like a Eugene O'Neill play back in those days. A lot of flinty old farmers with uh, in overalls. Mm -hmm. And uh uh, it was kind of a revelation to um, be in that world after growing up in Manhattan. And uh, I also got a, lot, a big charge out of uh, seeing the small towns of New England that you know, it was kind of a, a revelation to me, too. So uh, uh, that was a, a very interesting interlude in my life. My mother was from a, a very small town in New Hampshire, and 
So I spent a lot of summers, and I love those small towns. Uh, where was that, by the way? You're, where was East, your mom from? E- East Jaffrey. Oh, I don't know where that is. Huh? It's near Peterborough. Okay, because we were up in Enfield, if you know where that is. Yes. And that's sort of near Sunapee, and, and mm-hmm. uh, there's not much there. Um, it wasn't at the time. Uh, I think a lot of weekenders have bought yes, stuff that's up. that's right. Because uh, it's now only about two hours from Boston on the interstate. In the old days, it was a real kind of ordeal to get there. That's true. But it was, uh, I, I thought, a great place, and, and uh, I'm glad I had that experience as a kid. Yeah, and, and those combinations of experiences, actually, of, of me having spent three years in the suburbs as a, you know, a, a child between the age of five and eight, and then living in the heart of New York City and experiencing that, that very intense way of life, and then going to college uh, in a Main Street small town in a, in a rural county, uh, really kind of prompted me to write uh, the book that I'm probably best known for, which is called The Geography of Nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it was about how we decided to inhabit the landscape and especially about the fiasco of suburbia that that now characterizes the way that we live in, in this country uh, and have for the last uh, two or three generations. And I regard it as an enormous problem, uh, something that uh, is probably going to fail catastrophically for us and uh, something that we're not paying attention to whatsoever. I, I agree. And it's, of course, all, all designed by the federal government. I mean, the fact that there could only be six styles of houses and and uh, uh, you couldn't have mixed use. You couldn't have people living above their stores. And, and... Well, th- those were some of the rules. You know, I, I'd have to I'd have to argue with you that that wasn't really the whole story because it it was really a, a huge consensus among all the players in our society that that was what we should do. And I, I base this on what I call my new theory of history, which is that things happen because they seem like a good idea at the time. <laughs> All right. You know, World War One seemed like a good idea at the time. Well, not, not to everybody, Europe, but yeah, Europe, to most people. You know, Europe had come off of this uh, century relative uh, the century of relative peace after the Napoleonic Wars. And, uh, you know, they we had this first iteration of globalism from the 1870s until 1914. And then something broke, something something cracked and uh, the war started and the players, the European players in the First World War thought that they were just going to gloriously ride off on horses and, you know, reenact the 19th century warfare. And, you know, they discovered that something entirely new was uh, was on the menu, which was the industrial slaughter of the of the trenches and the deaths of millions and millions of the young men of Europe of that generation. And it was an enormous trauma for the world. But it seemed like a good idea at the time. So building suburbia seemed like a good idea at the time. And we're going to discover to our great misfortune, that it was a tremendous fiasco and blunder. Although thinking about World War One, it was made much worse by Wilson's intervention. Uh, probably was. Um, uh, it, it, it may have ended sooner if it were not for that, yes. but it's, yeah. it is a little bit hard to Monday morning quarterback that. But we can certainly see what the, what the results of it were. And, and um, uh, it was a nervous breakdown for the Western Civ. And we haven't recovered from that. You know, we're, no, the, that's right. The nervous breakdown is ongoing and it is now being uh, provoked to extreme degrees by the, you know, the, the forces 
that uh, the forces of modernism that bethink themselves to be the avatars of progress. And uh, uh, th they've entered on what um, uh, you might call a kind of Gnostic-inspired program to change the world by changing human nature. You know, and they're not going to change human nature because human nature is what it is. And, uh, uh, you know, that that is not going to uh, really work as a solution to our problems. But but that's exactly what they're trying to do now. And they're trying to do it by coercing everybody uh, into changing our customs, habits and behavior in ways that are probably not going to work. Uh, the Mueller investigation and, and the activities around it were for sure an, a conspiracy to uh, um, alter the outcome of the 2016 election. Yeah, it's interesting that, the, you know, as you know, the phrase conspiracy theory is, was invented by the CIA after they were having trouble with the Kennedy assassination. And it's the specific definition is you have no facts, nothing behind the conspiracy theories. That's a pejorative uh, meaning of the phrase, but you know that it, it didn't always have that pejorative meaning. It just really means a you know a, a theory about uh, more than one person entering into a compact to carry out an action. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's clearly what happened uh, this time with the FBI, uh, certain people in the Department of Justice and in 2016 and 17, uh, people in the CIA mm -hmm. and other people in the permanent bureaucracy, plus, you know, throw in some Congress people and the mainstream media. And people in Britain and uh, the EU, apparently, as well. Exactly. The, especially their, their intelligence services. So, uh, you know, whether we can successfully straighten that out, the, the, one of the things that impresses me is that the amount of information that is and established fact that is now out there about that, including all the FISA abuse information, uh, all the information about the strange players in this drama, like Joseph Mifsud and Stefan Halper, mm -hmm. and and exactly who they were working for. You know, this is now pretty well established fact, and yet uh, the uh, you know the whole corpus of of. Uh, American politics has failed to really absorb it and adjudicate it yet. I think we have reason to believe that Mr. Barr is in the process of doing it and doing it in a in, in a pretty quiet way. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, or I should say, I, I do think that he's uh, um, attempting to not be seen as grandstanding this uh, rather momentous action that is now being taken to discover exactly what was behind all of this. And um, it is going to be momentous because a lot of people are going to pay a penalty and it's going to make a lot of the perpetrators of this fraud very angry and a lot of them are politically powerful. And it's going to create even more political dissension in the country. And I don't know if we can resolve the bad feeling uh, between the, the, the poles of our politics. Uh, I tend to think that um, what we're going to see is a, a political blow up that will be accompanied by a financial sector blow up, and it will leave the United States in disorder for many, many, many years ahead and uh, unable to resolve any of our problems with the problems really beginning to affect us very badly, especially the ones that involve money uh, and, uh, and, and wealth and, uh, accumulated capital and, and the, um, uh, management of capital. 
Well, Mr. James Howard Kunstler, thank you very much for this talk today. Uh, you're, you're an extraordinary person, and uh, we're going to link to all your books, have uh, widgets of them. And uh, Thank you. Don't forget to tell people I bake cookies and make my own clothes, too. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, there's one more thing I, I got to add. You know, I mean, this has been a pretty grim conversation, but I'm actually a pretty cheerful guy. And, you know, uh, my, my Monday and Friday blog, uh, which is at kunstler.com, uh, is generally filled with gags because, as Samuel Beckett once observed, nothing is funnier than unhappiness. <laughs> no, your your blog, of course, is tremendous, and uh, I uh, I love uh, running it, and I get a lot of great comments about it, as I should. So thanks for coming on today, and thanks for all you do. Best wishes to you and to for your success, your continued success, no matter what else, what happens to people in Washington or New York or Boston. Well, as we say here in flyover land, we will ride again. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Lou Rockwell Show today. Take a look at all the podcasts. There have been hundreds of them. There's a link on the LRC front page. Thank you.